You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. In this episode, we're going to need to think about how to be proactive and start thinking about these markers as healthy pregnancy markers rather than just aneuploidy. Good morning. We want to welcome our readership back to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. This morning, we're going to be able to discuss an article from Issue 7, the June 2015 issue of the American Journal of Perinatology entitled, Early onset severe preeclampsia by first trimester pregnancy associated plasma protein A and total human chorionic gonadotrophin. And we are joined by Dr. Laura Jalief Pawlowski, who is an associate professor in the Division of Preventative Medicine and Public Health within the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics in the UCSF School of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, we were very excited to have this opportunity to discuss your article because I think it brings some very interesting insight into the additional uses of a very common testing technique used to screen for aneuploidy amongst pregnant women in the United States. Now, in your study, you were able to obviously examine a very large number of pregnancies who were screened between 2009 and 2010. I wonder if you would give us some insight into how screening works in California and how this publication, your initial ideas and design for this publication. Well, in California, all women are offered by law prenatal screening. They, of course, have the option to participate or not, but all physicians and prenatal providers in general are required to essentially offer it to women. And if she comes in between 11 and 14 weeks and 6 days, she has the option to participate in first trimester screening for aneuploidies and neural tube defects. And that for this is the set that we focus on, where women who came in in the first trimester and opted for screening and then also for whom they had a delivery of a live birth and we were able to link that screening record to a live birth record and hospital discharge records and get extensive information about the pregnancy outcome and complications. For this work, that's the set of women that we used. So we had about 120,000 women who over a course of two years had this first trimester screening and these linked birth outcomes. Yes, that's a very cross-representative section of the population. What is the percent of patients that will opt for screening versus decline screening in the California program? You know, it depends in California very widely like it does anywhere. There are parts of the state in which there's fairly high uptick in terms of women choosing to participate in screening. So if we're talking about the more urban areas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, those that participate is about 75 or even a little bit higher percent. In other parts of the state, inland in the Central Valley, it can be as low as 50%. So it really ranges, you know, 50% to about 75%. So in this case, the biologic plausibility for linking the potential of the serum markers, the PAPA and the HCG, that underlie the screening mechanism that we use in the first trimester combined screen. Now, when you link that, 
the possibility of an association with early onset severe preeclampsia. Do you have a sense of what your thoughts are concerning how this may be a pathway toward the development of preeclampsia? Absolutely. So what we do know, and, and I know that you and your listeners certainly are aware of this, is that none of these markers right now really are diagnostic of a Crohn's defect or a neural tube defect. What they are are markers of how well the placenta is or is not doing for the most part. And in particular, pregnancy-associated plasma protein A and human chorionic gonadotropin are really linked to how well the placenta is doing, and it's particularly in it, how well it's invaded, how the trophoblast is developing. So they're really markers of placental function, and given that preeclampsia in particular is so closely associated with placental function, there's really a direct line there in terms of, you know, it's not like we're going out on a limb by any means. We really have a great measure of placental function that is also highly predictive of chromosomal defects, but is also really pointing to a placenta that's not doing well. So these are both markers that are produced by the placenta, where high levels of HCG are related to poor placental function, and low levels of PAP-A are related to poor placental function. So it's well established in the literature. It's really this study taking it to almost, I would argue, its logical next step, which is saying, okay, we have all of this data on the large group of women. Might this information tell us something additional beyond whether or not she's at risk for a chromosomal defect or an NTD? Absolutely. I believe a lot of us in hypertensive disease and pregnancy and looking at preeclampsia risk believe that the initial setting or the initial background that is set up to develop preeclampsia occurs probably at implantation and in early pregnancy with establishment of the villus cytotrophoblast invasion into the uterine wall. And certainly this is a very unique opportunity to look at very early placental function, as you mentioned, in, in the case of PAPA and HCG. Now, now, getting into the patients and the methods that were used in this study, one of the things I note is that we were looking specifically at patients who had expected dates of delivery in 2009 or 2010. During that time period in California, was there any suggestion or any protocols in place where physicians were changing their management based upon a low PAPA or an elevated HCG? That's a really great question. I think it's a real challenge in the field right now, which is I think we certainly know that at some institutions like ours at UCSF and close collaborators at, for example, Stanford University and other places, that in those settings, often they are making changes around, you know, for instance, a woman with a screen positive result for a chrome defect who has an amnio and turns out not to have a chrome defect, that they're still often managing these women differently. They're seeing them more often. They're aware of the increased risk. I think the concern by a lot of us is that there is no standard protocols around how to manage these women. So physicians who are aware of the literature know this body of work will manage them more closely. But I suspect, and you know, I have only anecdotal information, but that doctors that don't, who maybe are not at some of these more university settings, without guidance from ACOG, et cetera, on how we might manage these women more sort of evenly everywhere, I think it's still an open question. But I do know some are really managing these women differently based on a false positive for a chromosomal defect, but still have normal markers. 
Now, one of the other things that I noticed is you limited the data to documentation of a live birth that occurred in a hospital, and you also had a discharge summary. Do you have a sense of these patients, how many would have gone on to potentially have a stillbirth or a pregnancy loss, you know, in this case, and they were not included in this data such that maybe there are some patients who have very adverse outcomes that do not make it to a live birth? We do. We have other data that really has looked at fetal demise and some of these outcomes, for instance, that for a, a screen positive result, but we did not include that here. But it, we do know from other work published by our group and others that the same marker patterns will also predict fetal demise and pregnancy loss. So yes, that data is out there and we're doing more with it, but what we found for preeclampsia, if the focus is preeclampsia, is that often for some of these fetal demise cases, it's often prior toward to us knowing about preeclampsia. So for this manuscript, we restrict it to live birth. Certainly. Now, you also made another restriction, which is a very interesting one and I think a very powerful one. You chose to focus specifically on early onset severe preeclampsia. Can you tell us a little bit about why you selected that as your primary outcome in this case to evaluate? I think the two primary reasons to do this, and I hope it's shared by our colleagues, one is, you know, obviously these really early deliveries, these babies are at much higher risk for mortality and morbidity, so that's of course a, a huge concern. But the other is that I think given a lot of the really exciting literature around aspirin, especially over the past five years, but you know, we all know it's been out there forever, but I think with the meta-analysis out, et cetera, that we may have an opportunity with these women to think about some clinical trials, et cetera, that are based on potential function and see if we could get some of these women into treatment early and maybe prevent some of these. So I would say it's really twofold. One, of course, is this is a group of women and babies that were hugely concerned about given very early deliveries. But the second is that given the meta-analyses around aspirin, et cetera, and the importance of starting before 16 weeks, that I think we have to really at this point, if we're trying to get to a, something that may translate into clinical practice, that really we're looking at the first trimester or at the very least before 16 weeks. Very interesting. And I imagine that also this would offer the opportunity of early interventional trials in the future because one of the issues we deal with currently is our pre-test prediction of the outcome of preeclampsia is very difficult. And as a result, we have to potentially expose many women who will not develop a disease to an intervention, which may carry some degree of risk in studying ways to avert or maybe prolong pregnancies in women who have early onset severe preeclampsia. And I agree. And it's one of those things in prenatal screening, our tolerance around false positives and the type of intervention and the risks that come with it, right? But I think with the aspirin trial, the risk appears to be quite low in terms of adverse outcomes. And even if we're talking about some of the work on women with previous preeclampsia or previous preterm birth, the false positive rate around those particular histories are, of course, huge, right? You know, most of those women by far will go on to be fine. So I think, you know, evaluating and not in terms of the same way we, for instance, do a, a screening test for, for trisomy 21, but thinking about the risk and thinking about the possible benefits 
of having, admittedly, a fairly substantially large group, you know, five of false positive group, but there's a lot of weighing to do around what we should do. But I guess my view with these women, especially who may have been false positive for these chromosomal defects, is that I feel like we need to give them some next step that's different than sort of saying, okay, you don't have a chromosomal defect, you're fine. I think we have some ethical obligation to provide closer care to those women given what we know about their risks for these other things. Absolutely. Now, looking at the results from this study, one of the things that you chose to do in your analysis is to look separately between nulliparous women compared to those who were multiparous and also examining what types of associations were present in the development of those who had a case of early onset severe preeclampsia. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts when you divide this population into those two groups? And then what things did you find as far as associated factors? There's really existing literature about nulliparous women being at increased risk for preeclampsia and a number of other outcomes. And so in this and other work, we really want to see essentially, you know, do the risk factors in general, are they different in terms of maternal characteristics, but also that the magnitude of the association with the markers may look different and that screening tests may be more accurate if we actually split by the nulliparous and the multip women. And because we have sufficient power, we chose to do that here and we've done it in other studies as well. And I will say that when you... If we saw exactly the same pattern, then we would have rolled them up and lumped them into one. But when we start looking at, for instance, the, just the risk factors in terms of maternal characteristics, you can find, for example, that the patterns by race ethnicity are very different in terms of the relationship with early onset preeclampsia in the nullists and the multips, where, for example, women who are African American or at much higher, who are multips are at higher risk for preeclampsia, where we don't see quite that kind of risk in nullips. So the reason for splitting is both in terms of previous studies showing that nullists and multips are different in terms of their risk, but also our data on risk factors in terms of maternal characteristics showing that they look very, very different. And then what that led us to do then were in our models, our biomarker models, we wanted to make sure that we adjusted for those maternal characteristics in our final models. And those characteristics we had to adjust for in the nullips and the multips were very different. And so that's really what guided us. And while we found that the marker patterns were predictive across both groups, the nullips and the multips, we found that, for example, among the nullips, PAP A, even at slightly high or higher levels, was still associated with risk. So for instance, a very low PAP A, so less than the fifth percentile, was associated with an increased risk of early onset preeclampsia in the nullips and the multips. But even half a level between the 6th and the 10th percentile was associated with increased risk in the nullips. I think it's also very telling you were able to report when you performed your analysis between the nulliparous patients and the multiparous patients looking at various analyte marker patterns, you were able to actually report the rate in which you would anticipate seeing severe early onset preeclampsia based upon the specific marker pattern that was seen. And one of the most powerful, since we know that this testing is always going to involve both obtaining a PAPA as well as a total HCG, we're going to potentially have those two markers that are being performed as routine standard of care where we can additionally utilize it for a risk stratification. And one of the things that we deal with currently is 
since the aspirin trials as well as the recommendations by the AHRQ for the utilization of aspirin to reduce the risk of preeclampsia where we use a clinical-based risk system, this provides us with also an additional biomarker-based risk system which potentially gives us even more insight as to what the exact rate is likely to be in a patient who has both a PAPA that is very low and an HCG that's very high. One of the things that we, we're looking at now that's changing very rapidly in our specialty is the introduction of the use of cell-free fetal DNA for the screening for aneuploidy. And I'm wondering, in California, are you seeing a decline in the availability of samples for combined first trimester screening involving the PAPA and the HCG? So far, we, because of the law around prenatal screening, I mean, right now in the state of California, women are, you know, they could go and get a cell-free DNA test on their own. But in terms of prenatal screening, the way cell-free DNA is tending to work is that women will still get serum screening. When they come through the program, they'll still get serum screening, and then they essentially can opt for either an amnio or cell-free DNA after a positive screening result, and some women opt for both, then those both are not essentially paid for by the state. You know, through the state, she'll, she gets either an amnio or she'll get a cell-free DNA test. So in terms of the availability of the serum data, especially in the first trimester, I would say there's still the availability of the data. Some women may not come back in the second trimester, but still the first trimester data is there. So Currently, we're not seeing, for instance, women not doing serum tests, you know, widely. That may change in the future, and it's really an interesting conversation. And I will say that those of us who know that these markers are indicative of something going on with the placenta and inform things like preeclampsia or preterm birth, we hope that that doesn't go away because we feel like it has this broader use. But part of that is, of course, widely discussing the broader use and talking about strategies for using that data. I fully agree with you. I believe that, you know, it does add additional clinical insight at a very early part of pregnancy where we have the opportunity to potentially intervene. For instance, these patients may have additional surveillance from the standpoint of growth to ensure a baby is growing appropriately, given that this is the earliest marker of placental dysfunction potentially in many pregnancies. The other possibility is as we go forward, data like this is going to help drive the discussion of how do we continue to implement our screening mechanisms for which we have used for so many years now since the FASTER trial came about in the United States to validate first trimester screening. How do we implement this use and also the additional interpretation of these markers in concert with evolving use of cell-free fetal DNA for aneuploidy screening going forward? And I really feel that this is very interesting work and you certainly have a very unique opportunity to look at a large population to really discern this information. I'm wondering if you have seen, in your experience, are you seeing individuals start to use these markers within your facility or in the state of California in general in modifying their care? Are they starting to consider more aspirin? Are they starting to consider examining growth? Do they modify their care in any way at this point moving into 2015? 
this gets back to what we were talking about a little different. And I will say we've been presenting kind of similar kinds of analyses. I, I think I agree with what you're saying in terms of the early onset preeclampsia really being a special case because it really we have aspirin and we absolutely know that it's worked in some populations for reducing preeclampsia. But we're, in presenting this data over the past several years with regard to preterm birth and previa and accreta and a number of other factors, particularly at FMFN, I talked to some physicians who are sort of routinely thinking about different ways to manage women who have had really abnormal marker patterns, and then some who are really looking for guidance and suggestions in terms of what they should be doing. So there's clearly a hunger, and I agree that it's an important time right now because with cell-free DNA, I think we're looking at, I think, either reimagining what these markers tell us about healthy pregnancy and placental function, or we're looking at that this testing and this routine mechanism of giving this very important information going away. So I feel like if, if we as investigators and clinicians in this field don't sort of take some action now, that you're right, we have all this great infrastructure currently that allows us to collect this information and tells us all this amazing stuff about the placenta and what's going on and perhaps provides actionable inroads. So it's an important time, but I think we're going to need to think about how to be proactive and start thinking about these markers as healthy pregnancy markers rather than just aneuploidy. Absolutely. And I want to thank you and your collaborators in taking the time out this morning to discuss this with us and also moving this field forward because I anticipate this type of work is going to continue that discussion, it's going to continue the examination of how is it that we potentially utilize these markers, how is it that we modify pregnancy care, and then finally, how does this fit into the global paradigm of preparing patients and managing patients to reduce maternal mortality as well as adverse fetal outcomes, which I think is the first and foremost opportunity here. As a researcher, there's certainly also some significant benefit if we can enrich populations to study interventions for early onset preeclampsia to minimize the exposure of normal pregnancies to interventions that may carry more risk than, for instance, a low-dose aspirin. We want to thank you for joining us this morning, and again, congratulations on a wonderful manuscript. And again, this is published in Issue 7, the June 2015 issue of the American Journal of Perinatology. We look forward to joining our listenership again next month for the review of another manuscript. And I want to remind you that this manuscript is available on our website as a public access article so that you can also join in this discussion, enjoy this manuscript, and begin to think about some of the things that we've brought up today during our discussion. Thank you again, Dr. Jaleef Polowski. Thank you. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.